So we will continue today in our series through the Ten Commandments. Uh, and we've covered some ground and some territory up to this point, uh, and we've looked at the very first week how God worked in the lives and among the people of the Israelites, that he rescued them out of slavery, uh, that he brought them up out of Egypt, that he became their God. That, that's kind of the work before the Ten Commandments were even given, that God sent a rescuer to them in Egypt in the person of Moses. He called Moses by name. He gave him the authority of God's name, Yahweh, to speak, and we're going to land there today. God sent a rescuer to them. He chose this people out of Egypt. He had chosen them and pledged himself to them through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob already, and he was acting in faithfulness to his word to rescue them. He defeated the country that they were in. He defeated the ruler. He defeated the gods that they worshipped in Egypt and showed himself to be God and God alone, authority over all things. And so in that, we saw God's authority. We saw God's care. We saw his love for his people. And he showed his faithfulness. He supernaturally rescued them and is currently providing for them. He provided food for them in the wilderness. He kept them safe as the armies of the Egyptians came after them. He stood, literally, God stood in a pillar of smoke between the Israelites and the Egyptians. When there was a sea bounding them on one side, God stood in the midst and defended his people. And then when they crossed the Red Sea, supernaturally, of course, because that doesn't happen naturally, and the Egyptians followed after them, God defeated an army without any person raising a sword to them. That's how God worked in their midst. And he's literally, at this point that we encounter the Ten Commandments, he's literally guiding them through the wilderness in a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. He's literally walking with them. He's bringing them food and water. Hundreds of thousands of people moving at once without SUVs packed with trunks, with baskets of food and water. There are no bottles of water There are no filtration systems like God is supernaturally providing for them step by step by step. It's who he is and it's what he does. And when we encounter him in Exodus 20, he is speaking to the whole of the people on a mountain that is shaking as his voice resounds. And the people are frightened as they hear him. His voice invokes terror in a good way. And after God has done all of those things, after he has worked, he has chosen, he has rescued, then he gives the Ten Commandments. So the people, as a response to who he is and what he's done, would respond in obedience, not so that they could live in the Ten Commandments and earn their rescue out of Egypt and earn God's favor on them by feeding them and clothing them. By the way, their sandals did not wear out the whole time they were wandering. Their clothes did not wear out. Like, he sustained their clothes, the things that they needed. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments, not as a way to earn his doing all that, but as a response to who he is. And that's what he says at the very beginning of this. God spoke all of these things in verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore... You shall have no other gods before me. 
So he gives the Ten Commandments out of who he is and what he's done. So as we have moved through, you shall have no other gods before me. We worship God and God alone. There are no other gods that we go to, either American gods or Egyptian gods or foreign gods. And when I say American gods, we covered a few of those last week. I won't go back. There are no other gods before him. Him and him alone. He is God. And we do not even worship him by making an image. Even if we are aiming to worship God through that image or that thing, and we don't worship other things because that's forbidden in the first commandment. And so God takes his worship seriously. He says, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for my name. And that is not like the way that we... Like if we demanded worship, if I demanded, I'm not, wouldn't, won't, am not, okay. But if I demanded that you were to worship me, that would be ridiculous. Why? Because there's nothing about me that should be worshipped by you. Like, so if I were demanded, demanded that, and if I said I'm jealous for the worship of my name, you would look at me and you would go, what? What are you talking about? Who are you to demand that we worship you? Who are you to be jealous that we worship God? Because God is here, and I'm like as low as low could be. Like there's no comparison. So when God says, I'm jealous for the worship of my name, it's a whole different thing, and we can't put ourselves in his position and go, why is God jealous for his name? Because he deserves to be jealous for his name. He deserves to be worshiped. Because he's not lacking in anything. Because he is good in everything. Why is he jealous? Because he's right to demand worship. It's what he deserves. It's who he is. It's what we owe him. All that we have and are go back to him. We should rightfully worship him in his fullness. And so then we get to the third commandment. And, and here's the way that I'm, I think about this. Because if I were to ask you, if I were to poll right now, I would assume that everybody has an idea of what it means, what, what you think it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. Okay. And I probably would have been in the same position as you without even asking what that is. I would have probably been in the same position of you maybe a month ago. And, and I'm making an assumption about where you are and what you think about that command. I think this morning my prayer is that we would kind of pull back the curtain on God's name, that we would see everything that lies behind it more than just Yahweh, more than just Jesus Christ, more than God. Everything else that comes with it beyond just the word. And here's what I would equate it to. I don't know if you're like me in this. Uh, one of the things that I enjoy doing from time to time, not always, got to be in the mood for it. You watch a movie, right, and then you go, how did they do that? Because you see what happens on the movie, but there's always a backstory on how they accomplished that. So even I, the first one that I remember doing this with was Star Wars. Um, and the, the things that George Lucas was able to pull off in his day and age, like there was no 
computers. There wasn't computer animation. I, I, one of the things that stuck with me, and I'm going to get this wrong. I should have asked David before I started what this was. But as Luke on the planet of Tatooine is going across the desert in this, I call it a speed racer. But it's a, it's a little race car that floats along the ground, a speeder, land speeder. Thank you. He's close enough I could hear him. A land speeder, right? And, and the speeder, when you see it on the screen, it's like it's floating across the ground. How in the world did George Lucas do that? And I saw the behind the scenes, the making of that scene, and, and that was just one of the things that, um, that people were pointing to to say, man, George L Lucas was way before his time on the things that he was able to accomplish special effects-wise. And I think that goes for a lot of movies. Like you see a scene in a movie, somebody's hanging out of a helicopter and the wind is blowing their hair and it's crazy and, and they're thousands of feet up and you look behind them and then when you look at the making of the scene, it's like them in a constructed helicopter, like half of a helicopter, and it's just green all around them and they're hanging there like two feet off the ground. Uh, but then they put all the rest of the stuff in with computer animation. The fan is blowing their hair. Like when you peel back the curtain and you see what's behind the thing that you see, you go, oh, that's how they did that. My prayer is in the same way that as we peel the curtain back and look at what is behind God's name, that we would go, oh, there's way more to this than I realized. So let's read I, I kind of have said it already, but let's just read from 1 through verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. God spoke them to all of the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I rescued you, so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, including God, or that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And that's, I think, where we get in trouble. There's a lot of things that we serve other than God. But that was last week. If you missed it, go listen. For I, the Lord am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what is in a name? What is behind the name of God, is this more serious than just saying God's name as a cuss word? Is this more serious than working on a car and getting your hands stuck in a place that it can't fit in and yelling out Jesus' name in response to the hurt that you feel in your hand? Is this commandment more than that? And I would say those things are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to taking the name of the Lord in vain. And I, I think if we were honest with ourselves, even this morning, every single person in this room has broken this commandment. At some point, even by 11.10 this morning. 
Do you believe me when I say that? Is it, is it possible that everyone in here has broken this commandment at 11.10 on Sunday morning? Since you woke up. What I want to do is look at, and I spent some time, and trust me, this list as we walk through it is not exhaustive by any means. And I would encourage you, find some computer software or somebody that can help you use some computer software. BibleGateway.com is a great place to start. There are many others. Pull up the Bible, search, name. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, and just start reading through all of the scriptures where God's name, where God is talking about his name. And you're going to find some other references to name, certainly that, that aren't referring to God and his name. But begin to read through that and look through that and think through that, and you're going to see even a bits of what I was able to gather for this morning and start to get a picture that is broad and wide about the weight of God's name. We, we want to see the weight of God's name. And so even starting in the beginning, here's what we see. His, his name first comes up. God has been working up to Exodus 3, all through Genesis, through the beginning of Exodus. But we see his name at the very beginning of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, and Moses is before him. He found the burning bush. He walked up and he's going, what in the world is this bush that's not burning? It's on fire, but it doesn't deteriorate. And he goes up to it to check it out. And in the middle of that bush, God speaks. And he says, go rescue my people. And Moses asks, okay, when I go to these people, when I go to Pharaoh, I'm just Moses, okay? So if I go on my own authority, I'm not going to get us very far. So who do I say has sent me? Do, do, when I go to them and they look at me like I'm crazy, hey, I'm going to rescue you out of Egypt. And they go, <laughs> Yeah, you're just one dude, right? Good luck. Who do I tell them that sent me? Whose authority am I going on? And God says, I am who I am has sent you. Tell them I am has sent you. And that's the first place that we encounter God's name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And there's so much packed into that one name that we don't even have time to go into it. But let us just say briefly that his name, I am Yahweh, is personal, just like Grace or David or Alicia or Bruce or anybody else. Yes, you get picked because you're on the front. Right, And your name references you. The name Yahweh references God and God alone. It is personal. It is not a bunch of gods. It is God-specific, Yahweh. It's personal. It is eternal. I am who I am. I've always been. It's unchanging. I am now who I've always been. I have always been, and I will always be, and who I've always been will not change. It's unchanging. And because of that, it's faithful. He says, I'm going to rescue you. I told Abraham I was going to bring my people into this place. You guys are slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to rescue you. He's faithful to his word. What he says is true. Moses goes in and he acts in power. In what power? The powerful name of God. It is powerful. It is worthy. When Moses comes before the bush, God says, take off your shoes for the place that you are standing is holy ground. There was nothing about the dirt or the sand that made it holy. It was about the presence of God who was there. His name is worthy, and he is kind. He doesn't deal with us as we should. He overlooks much of our guilt. 
He is loving. He loves us. That is his name. When Moses is up on the mountaintop, God meets with him. Exodus 34, 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed to Moses, God standing there proclaimed the name of the Lord. He's standing, Moses is in his presence, and God is proclaiming to him the name of the Lord. God's name is holy. Leviticus 23 20 verse 3, I myself will set my face, God saying, against that man and will cut him off from among his people because, why is God setting his face against him? Because he has given one of his children to Molech. He has served another God, Molech, to make my sanctuary unclean and in his idolatry to profane my holy name. His name represents his presence. Deuteronomy 12, verse 11, the place, the tabernacle, the place where he said, this is where I'm going to dwell. It is called the place that I will choose to make his name dwell there. The presence of God dwells there, and the presence of God, he says, is my name. And he does that in Deuteronomy 12, verse 21, to put his name there. In Deuteronomy 14.23, the name will dwell there. His name will dwell there. Deuteronomy 14.24, It is the place where God's name dwells. His presence, where they worship. The tabernacle. And later, when the temple is built at the hands of Solomon, it is referred to over and over in Samuel and 1 Kings, He shall build a house for my name. A house for God's name. God's name is equated with His presence. Who He is over and over. A house for my name. A house for my name. It represents God's might and authority. Deuteronomy 20, verse 28, verse 10. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. When they hear your name, when they encounter you on the battlefield, they will know that my name stands over you and surrounds you and you have been brought into my name and you represent me. I will fight for you. It is my name, God says. It's his might, his authority. His name invokes awe. Deuteronomy 28, 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear the glorious and awesome name, Yahweh, your God. It invokes awe. Awesome name. His name and his reputation uphold his faithfulness. 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Why is he faithful to us despite our failings of him? For our sake? No. Not for our sake. We are recipients of that for the sake of His great name, it says. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Because He has put His stamp on the people that He has chosen, and when He has chosen them, they represent Him, and He will not forsake them, because then we would say, what kind of God does that? And He's faithful to His people because of his name and we benefit from that his name is strong and mighty and brings protection when david goes up against goliath right 
If you've heard any Bible story, I hope you've heard this one. Right? David goes up, this little, bitty, scrawny, about-like-me shepherd kid. Right? And he's going up against this nine-foot-tall, like the rock. Okay? But the rock is nine-foot-tall. Dwayne Johnson. If you don't know who that is, Google him. He's huge. It's like me going up against him with a, a slingshot with a rock. Okay? This cat is going to destroy him. But why does David go up against him? How is he not afraid? How is he actually eager to go into battle against this behemoth giant? 1 Samuel 17, 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin? Yes, and you look tough, and you've got some big weapons? I give it to you. But I come to you with what? A sling and a stone? No. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. I come against you because I stand with and for my God who you have spoken out against and defied. And I'm not afraid to stand in front of you because I have his name and his authority and his power to come against you and you have defied it. So bro, me and you are not only going to have words, but it's it. I'm coming for you. And he did. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Listen, there's a lot of places that we could run to to feel safe and to feel satisfied. There's a lot of safety that we could heap up for ourselves. And the extent to which we look to a savings account as our safety net or a retirement account as our safety net or a house and the walls that surround us as our safety, or the gun that we may be carrying that nobody sees as our safety net, the, which isn't a bad thing, the extent to which we find safety in all of those things is the extent to which we miss that where we find real safety and refuge in the name of the Lord. It is a strong tower. It is undefeated. It is powerful. His name is to be trusted. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in tanks and some trust in planes and some trust in aircraft carriers, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. All of those things are good, And right, and we're grateful, just as in when Israel goes out to battle, they rode horses and chariots. They used what they had available, but they didn't trust in that. They didn't trust in their swords. They trusted in the God who went before them, because if God was against them, it didn't matter how fast their horses were. It didn't matter how good their chariots were. It didn't matter how sharp their swords were. If the Lord was against them, they weren't going anywhere. They weren't accomplishing anything anything. His name is to be known throughout the entire earth. 1 Kings 8, 43, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. May they know your name. 
And we could go on. The Psalms are full of these. 113 verse 3, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. All the nations, Psalm 86, 9, that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and you shall glorify your name. All the nations you have made, Psalm 86, 9, come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. His name is majestic, Psalms 8, 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, sorry, you don't want to hear me sing. It's a hymn. We sing it. It's a great O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 8, 9, Psalm 8, 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the same. It was repeated. Yes. Psalm 9, 2. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high God. For the sake of his name, he leads us and pardons us from our guilt. Psalm 23, verse 3, the shepherd psalm. 23, verse 3, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. I get the benefit, yes. And I enjoy that, but it is for, He does it for His name's sake, not for my benefit. Psalm 31, verse 3, You are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sin for your name's sake. Are you starting to get the idea? His name is important. His name is bigger than just Yahweh. It's bigger than just a word. So, James, it sounds like you've quoted a lot of Old Testament stuff. But then Jesus comes in the New Testament and things kind of change around. And it's, it's a little bit different. I, I don't know. You decide. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus prays for the hallowing of God's name. This is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May God, may your name be hallowed. What does it mean to hallow the name of God? It means when we hear it, we don't just go, oh yeah. Or, or when we hear somebody speak against God, we don't go, man, you're probably missing out. I guess I better step back because lightning may, I don't know. We don't, we don't joke about the name of God. We, don't, we, we stand as David did against somebody who would take the name of God that way. And we say, listen, you don't know who you're talking about. You don't know what you're saying. Listen, the name of God is to be revered and hallowed. May your name be hallowed. Listen, if, we, if our desire was to see God's name hallowed in all the earth, hallowed be your name, God. If that was our prayer, if that was our heart's desire, how often would it be on our lips that we would be telling people? If our prayer was, God, hallowed be your name. I just want your name to be hallowed in Venezuela. God, I want your name to be hallowed in Holdenville, in houses that it is not. 
How can we get to those houses and those people and share your name and call them to hallow your name? God, would you do something with us, through us? Would you make your name known? Would people know and hallow and respect your name and worship your name? Is that really our prayer? Are we concerned for the reputation of God's name the way that Jesus was? In all of the earth, will your name be hallowed? This is, I I listened to a sermon by John Piper on this, and, and he made this observation. This is motivated from the heart. Hallowing God's name is not something that we do step by step. It is action or words or or steps that we take from the motivation of desiring God's name to be hallowed. That's why it is a question. It's a request. May your name be hallowed. God, cause your name to be hallowed. Change my heart so that I operate out of a desire for your name to be hallowed. Because we cannot change our own heart. Yes? No? I mean, even sitting here, if you hear this and you go, man, that's not the way that I think. That's not the way that I feel. Like, I, I respect God's name and I trust God's name, but, but I don't feel that. How do you change that in you? Okay, I'm just going to, okay, hold on. <laughs> All right, I'm going to brace yourself. I'm going to change it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hallow it. I don't feel different. Okay, hold on. Let's try it again. One, two, three. Okay, hallow it. You don't do that in you. You don't do that by wanting to. You do it by God revealing it to you and God softening your heart and God changing you and God showing you and you standing in awe of Him. Jesus came into the world in the name of the Lord as He rides the donkey into Jerusalem. Blessed is He who comes, what? In the name of the Lord. In the name of Yahweh, Jesus came. John 12, 28, Father, glorify your name, Jesus asked. Then a voice came from heaven. God spoke to the Son. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus lived to glorify the name of the Father. John 17, if you read the high priestly prayer in John 17, you see this over and over. I have manifested your name, Jesus says, to God, to the people whom you gave me out of this world. John 17, 26, I made known to them your name. Jesus' first and foremost concern was that people would know the name of God. He didn't care about himself. He didn't care if they knew about his miracles. He didn't care if they knew his reputation. He didn't care if they knew he was going to the cross. He cared that they know the name of God. I have made it manifest. And by the way, Looking back at the command to not have any other gods before me, to not make for yourselves an idol, it is in the person of Jesus Christ that God is manifested and seen to behold. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus' concern was for the sake of God's name. Jesus brings, and and then it goes beyond just him after the name of God, his name becomes right there with God. Luke twenty four forty seven. in the wake of his resurrection. He says, 
for his namesake. And that repentance for, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repenting, repentance and forgiveness are granted through the name of Jesus. And this is why I have this. Jesus' name brings repentance and forgiveness. Jesus answers prayers in his name. John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so his name goes to answering prayers for the glory of God. So the name of Christ and the name of God work together. 14, 14, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus answers prayers for the sake of his name and the glory of God. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Jesus at the direction of God the Father. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, Jesus says, in my name. God the Father sending God the Spirit in the name of God the Son, the Trinity working together for the sake of the name of Jesus. In Jesus, there is the name of Jesus, there is fullness of joy, John 16, 24. In the name of Jesus, God, that, it is in the name of Jesus that God is praised. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Jesus, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let us praise God as we Offer up a knowledge of Jesus' name. Here's the last two. Like, where is this going to stop? It is the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that we have life and that we can be saved. Because of his name. I thought it was because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Yes, but it is in his name. There is no other name, Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is because of the name of Jesus that we can be saved, that we can be rescued. How much should we love the name of Jesus if it means our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins? Because without his name, we don't have that. It is in his name. John 20, verse 31. But these things, John says at the very end of his book, these things I have written to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. How? In his name. Hallowed be the name of God Yahweh, the name of Jesus, is to be praised. Acts 20, Acts 2, 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Jesus' name. And here's the last. I love this. There, there is no name higher than Jesus. There is no name higher than Jesus. You say, wait a second, I thought, I thought it was God's name. Yes, Yahweh, God the Father, 
Jesus Christ, God the Son, God the Trinity. Yes, more than one name. Philippians 2, 9. Therefore, because Jesus came and lived perfectly and laid down his life obediently. Jesus' aim was God's glory and the manifesting of his name. He walked in obedience to God's commands. Sound familiar? He laid down his life obediently for the sake of God's name. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, why does that matter? Because at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The two working in tandem, the name above all names. I thought that we saw that you shall have no other gods before me, that besides me, that there is no one else that you should worship. Yes, God the Father, God the Son working in tandem according to his name. The name that is above every name do not serve another god. Every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. Do not bow down to or serve them. The name of Jesus. Can you feel the weight of his name lastly? Well, two more. Hebrews 1, having become as much superior to angels as the name he was inherited is more excellent than theirs. He ascended into heaven, Jesus. And he goes past people, past the angels, above the angels. Why? Because his name is superior than theirs. He ascended all the way to the top of the top. There's no other name above his, not even the heavenly beings and the angels. Listen to where it leaves off at the end of the book, Revelation 19, 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, speaking of Jesus. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. A name written on him that no one knows but himself. He doesn't even tell us what it is because nobody knows but Jesus. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is what? The Word of God. And I assume that's a different name than the name nobody knows but Jesus because he just told us what that name was. The Word of God. Just like John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And on his robe, 1916, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His name is the Word of God. His name is the King of Kings. His name is the Lord of Lords. His name is above any other name that you could call out, any other name that you could know or understand. So, are you starting to feel the weight of this commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. All of these things, and this isn't even all of them, All of these things are the name of God, represent the name of God. His name is tied back to his presence. His name is tied back to his character. His name is tied back to his work. So how should we handle that? The question is, have you been affected by the name of God, by the name of Jesus? It is in the name of Jesus that you are saved. Have you been affected by it? 
has His name worked on you? By trusting in the name of Jesus, we have new life. We have the forgiveness of sins. Has His name affected you to the point where you say, I trust that I could do nothing to earn my place before God, that Jesus did everything and I trust Him. Has His name affected you? Has His name affected you to the extent that just like David, I see and hear God's name misused and I want to go against it and speak against it and act against it and revere and worship and praise the name of God? It just wells up from in me and I want to do that. Have you been affected by the name of God? Because if not, if you have read God's name, if you have spoken God's name, if you have heard God's name, and it has not changed you. You have used it or thought about it or read it in a way that has no effect on you or on anybody else. It carries no power with it in your mind, through your mouth, into their heart. Power through the Holy Spirit, the name of God. If that's the case, then you have used His name in vain. Forget about cussing. Does His name lead you to worship? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Is your urging to bow before Christ in worship? If it's not, even right now, if that's not your urge, if that's not your desire to fall down before Him and worship, it's not having the effect on you. In vain, without power, without effect, without regard for the person that it represents. God's name should invoke in us awe, reverence, worship, desire to make Him known. And when we live or think or act or speak in a way that brings dishonor and disrespect and a bad reputation on the name of God or that fails to elevate His name to where it should be, we're taking it, we're using it, we're absorbing it in a way that's in vain. What do you mean take it? Do you, young lady, take this man to be your lawfully wedded wife, husband? That's why I didn't do the ceremony yesterday. <laughs> no. Take it. Identify by it. Bear that name. Speak that name. Do you do so in vain? Has it affected you? It's more than just knowing it. It's more than just reading it. It's more than just repeating the words that you see. Let's pray. Father, I think if you've taught me anything this week is that 
I don't know that I get it the way that I'm supposed to. God, for us to come to your word and to read about you in a way that we come away callous and bored and unchanged, desiring something else to entertain us, God is the extent to which we miss the glory of your name. God, the awe that your name should invoke. God, and even these things are just the beginning point. Because the reality is, most of us, maybe all of us, do not live, whether figuratively or literally, do not live our lives on our knees, bowed down to the reverence of you day by day and hour by hour. And so to one extent or another, we miss the gravity and the weight of your name and who the name represents. God, may we not. God, may you be at work in us in such a way that your name through us is hallowed. In our mind, it is hallowed. And the way that we live shows that we hallow your name. God, may you be honored and glorified in us individually, in us as a church, and in the earth that you have created. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.